Hi, I'm Rashma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave, Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up and coming change makers who are leaving their fear of failure behind and letting bravery lead the way. You'll hear from incredible people who are using their skills and talents to make a difference in their community. And I'll ask them about the moments where they decided to be brave, not perfect. Today, I am talking to an amazing young woman, Yalitza Jean Charles. Growing up, Yalitza never had a doll that looked like her. The one time that her parents gave her a black doll, she burst into tears because it wasn't the pretty one. Since then, Yalitza has made it her goal to make sure that no other child ever has to feel the way that she did about her own appearance growing up. I started with Yalitza by just getting right to the point and asking her, what is colorism? We're just going to dive We're right in. right in there. <laughs> so colorism is a social hierarchy in which those with darker skin experience mistreatment and oppression and those with lighter skin experience favoritism. So it's pretty much like a, like similar to like the caste system where like it's a social status symbol. Yep. My mother used to always be like, don't get dark. You know what I mean? Put a hat on, put a ton of yep. sunblock. Because in India, if you were light skinned and fair you were considered to be attractive. In fact, there's like a product literally called Fair and Lovely. Yeah, like those lightning creams are one of the biggest selling products in India, in many countries, and in Africa too. So how did it affect you personally? I am not dark skinned, but I'm also not light skinned. It's kind of weird. So growing up, I had so many family members who would tell my mother, you know, don't let her get too dark. I remember particularly, I went on one trip to Florida. I had gone out on the beach and I was out in the sun all day. And then I came back and my family members turned to my mom and were like, why did you let her get so dark? And I thought that was so strange. I didn't understand why at the time it was weird. I was only about like seven to nine years old, but I knew that it was inappropriate the way that they were talking about skin color. And my mom is very light skinned and my dad is dark skinned. And this is something I saw a lot in my family. Like I had family members who used bleaching creams and had terrible burns from mm. it. And then growing up, I would avoid the sun and I would you know, make efforts to change the way that I looked to appear more Eurocentric because I saw how people were treated differently because of the way they look. So did you have dolls that looked like you growing up or no? Oh my God, no. <laughs> Uh, the one time my parents tried to give me a black Barbie doll for Christmas, I instantly started crying. Wow. I was so upset. I don't even think that they, when I was growing up, like they existed. Now it's a little bit different. And it's hard. I remember my son, Sean, we were playing Shoots and Ladder. And there were like four characters that he could pick from. The boy with the blonde hair, right? The girl and, you know, the boy that was black. And he picks the kid with blonde hair. And I was like, why did you pick that kid? He's like, because he looks like me. And I was like, no, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) He's a kid, but he doesn't necessarily look like you. And it's one of those things that we don't realize is ingrained in us in such a young age. Why is colorism a problem for media and how do you see it playing out in toys? So it's something that existed since we brought people of color to this country, like African-Americans during slavery. And that's when the system first perpetuated itself with house slaves versus slaves that worked in the field. The ones who were in the home were typically lighter skinned and those who were darker skinned would work out in the fields. And then African-Americans realizing if we appeal to Eurocentric Western standards of beauty, we can better treat it like People who were multiracial could pass for white oftentimes and get loans for banks or money and like better jobs and better opportunities. So then that just kept going on within the African-American community in particular, like people straightening their hair using lye, which is an incredibly dangerous chemical just so that they could appear to the 
standards of beauty that our society had set. In the 50s, the paper bag test, where African-American communities had set certain standards for their social clubs where you had to be lighter than a paper bag in order to get in or to be a part of this church, being able to pass a comb through your hair easily. And that just kept perpetuating itself and the way that we highlighted people and the people that we decided to put in our movies and choose to represent us. And still today, a lot of the African-American women that we see as like our most popular celebrities are still lighter skinned. It's very rare that we get to see dark skinned women represented and seen as beautiful. Lupita Nyong'o and Viola Davis are such outliers and it's very rare to see women like that. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, it shouldn't impact people's perception of you. When you were growing up in your community, were you primarily around kids of color or white kids? So I grew up in predominantly white spaces in a particularly strange way. There were children of color in my school, but I was often put into the higher academic classes and they didn't put a lot of brown and black kids in those classes. So all my peers in the classroom were white. And so how did you feel about yourself? Growing up, I struggled with a lot of internalized racism. That's like this idea that you're somehow better than other people of color for whatever reason. And I saw myself as like the special black kid. And I thought it was good to be in those spaces because I was like, oh, I'm not like those other black kids. I'm different. But hearing the white kids refer to me as like, you're the whitest black person I know. It's actually just racist. I didn't know at the time that the way that I was feeling was a part of racism and that that had been taught to me. When they said that to you, how did you feel? When I was younger, I thought it was good. It was still weird, but I thought it was good. I stopped accepting that towards high school and towards college because I I had developed the language to explain, actually, what you just said is really racist because you're implying that black people can't be intelligent because they're black and that I'm somehow an outlier because you find me acceptable. I mean, that's the thing. I felt I grew up, too, in a neighborhood that was mostly white, and I feel like up until about eighth grade, I definitely, like, denied my identity or struggled with it or was embarrassed when my mother wore sorry, or, you know, people asked me whether I was a Hindu. And then something always happens. And for me, it was, you know, a schoolyard fight. What was it for you? I don't know if I had a particularly defining moment. I think it might have happened with that first earthquake in Haiti, because I'm Haitian. This ties into the dynamics within the African diaspora, and people were commenting about Haitians and saying that they eat dirt, or they're really poor, and they're all really terrible people. And that's when it like clicked for me. I was like, wait a second. like This is not how this works. I don't know why you're talking about my people like this. And then I realized how I had ostracized myself, and I had accepted language to refer to me that wasn't appropriate. So what inspired you to start Healthy Roots? Being black my entire life. (laughs) I don't, so it's weird when people ask me that because I think it's just a collection of all the experiences that I've had as a woman of color in America. And when I first got to college, I would say the first defining experience that helped set me on the path to creating Healthy Roots was one of my African-American friends who was older than me. She had cut off all of her hair, what we call the big chop. She did it because she had been perming her hair all her life, and that's a chemical process of straightening your hair. And she said, I just want to know what my hair looks like. I just want to experience my own hair and feel beautiful in it. And then it hit me, an 18, 19-year-old, that I had no idea what my natural hair looked like because I'd been straightening it my entire life after my mother stopped braiding it. It dawned on me. I was reading so much literature because I was studying gender, race, and sexuality. I was reading about colorism. I was reading about internalized racism. And I was seeing the dynamics that I didn't understand and have the words to explain, but how I never saw girls that looked like me in media. They were never the romantic interest, or they were often portrayed as angry or you know mean or aggressive. 
and finally putting that into my work and using that as an artist to dissect my experience. And then I got to my junior year when I started getting involved in activism. I was at the Rhode Island School of Design and I was bringing Black Lives Matter to my campus in silent protests and demonstrations. We had the group Artists Against Police Violence there. I wanted to go from activism to bringing that conversation back into my work. So I started making more work about black women and the experiences that we have. And Healthy Roots started from a class where I redesigned Rapunzel and I turned her into a little brown girl with kinky curly (sighs) hair. I wanted to switch up those roles because you never see those, you never see black Disney princesses except for Tiana, who was like a frog for what percent of the movie? All of it. (laughs) So I turned Rapunzel (laughs) into a little brown girl with kinky curly hair because I wanted to create something that other little girls could see themselves in. And my classmates were like, wow, this looks like a doll. Have you thought about making this into a doll? And I hadn't. But then I went onto Facebook, 130 comments later, it dawned on me that these were experiences shared by not just me, but other women of color. And I took that project, I fleshed it out through a research paper and applied to the Brown University Social Innovation Fellowship. And they helped me turn that doll into Healthy Roots. That's amazing. So how do you think or have you seen how Healthy Roots can be a solution to kind of end colorism? So when I first started, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, was, I knew I was creating something for representation, but what exactly was my end goal? And so through that program and through other accelerators, I was able to define Healthy Roots as a toy company that creates products that empower children during the early stages of identity development. And we do that by creating dolls that come in different skin tones, facial features, and hair textures to represent the diversity of the African diaspora. And the reason why I chose to do that is because in my research, I found the Mammy Clark doll test, It was a test where they placed a white baby doll and a brown baby doll in front of both black and white children, and they asked them to ascribe either negative or positive attributes. And so overwhelmingly, the white kids would say, you know, the black doll is the ugly doll, it's not the smart doll, and the white doll is the good doll, and it's the pretty doll. But they also found that the African-American kids did the same exact thing. And this was used in the Brown versus Board of Education trial to show racial bias in children at an early age. And the other thing I used was I was going to go into children's illustration and I was looking up demographics and the representation in children's media. In 2014 at the time, only 8% of characters that were main characters in books were children of color. Over 50% of children in the U.S. are of color. And those numbers don't add up. The dynamics of our society are changing, but products that are being created for them are not. And so that was another opportunity that I saw to use toys, which are social tools, like you learn about yourself, how you identify through toys. And if you don't have products that represent you, you're not, you don't see yourself. Healthy Roots is starting with black girls because they've been so underrepresented for so long, but our ultimate vision is to empower and create opportunities for all girls to see themselves. So we're just starting here, but we're definitely gonna expand for girls around the world. I mean, this is exactly why we wrote our Girls Who Code books, you know, to have these diverse characters like, you know, Lucy, who's who's black with braids, right? Who is like the main character in our series books because you know, you can't be what you cannot see. And the like the yeah. notes that I get from friends or teachers or whatever with their children be like, mommy, Lucy has braids like me. It's like powerful for them. You know, I do this with my son. I'm constantly buying books with like South Asian characters or girls of color. So like he can see himself in these books. How do you think that your life would have been different if you grew up with healthy roots as a child? People ask me this from time to time. And my initial response is always, I don't know if I would want it to be different because I wouldn't have the same resilience that I have now. 
I definitely wouldn't have struggled as much as I did before, feeling like years of not feeling beautiful. And, you know, being beautiful isn't important, but it, it shouldn't be how we define people's value, but it does impact people's self-esteem, which overall impacts their quality of life. And so making sure that girls feel empowered and aren't feeling like insecure because of the way that they look. That's one thing that I would never want my own children to feel distracted by, is people judging them based on their appearance. And so that's something that definitely would have been different for me. I also would have felt like I could do a lot more things. My parents were so shocked to hear me say that I wanted to go to art and design school, but it was something that I was able to see myself doing because of the women of color that had inspired me while I was in high school and like studying artists. And so I think it's so important for children of color to see those things. Like I know everyone has seen that photo of President Obama having his head mm. touched by this little black boy. Like that is so powerful and impactful for children to see. It's true. I mean, even if you think about what's happening right now in our country in terms of like, you know, there's so much division. And I think what moves people is stories. When you listen to that audio tape of that child who was being separated from her mother at the border crying, I don't care where you sit, you had to be moved by that. And to kind of stand up and say, wait, what we're doing is wrong. And so I think art and images and storytelling and dolls and books are like so, so, so important. Yeah. You're young. You're a badass. You know, you're recognized <laughs> by Essence. It's, I mean, how's that feel to be recognized like that at such a young age? I don't think it's hit me. I think one of my biggest struggles is still imposter syndrome and also one of my issues is I have to constantly remind myself that I'm not behind. I always feel like I'm behind. I, you know, I have immigrant parents that have incredibly mm -hmm. high expectations for me. People think that having invest who expect a return from your company is hard, but immigrant parents expect a 100x return on whatever they invested in you. <laughs> And so I, I'm always constantly around like all these older people, you know, in their 30s and 40s who've like established themselves. Like a lot of my peers were able to go to the White House when Obama was there. And I'm sitting here like I'm still figuring out so many things about my life. But a lot of my friends have had to like sit down and remind me, make me like write lists, write down everything you've done this year. And I'm like, holy crap, that is a lot. And it's weird because I went to Essence Fest and I went to Summit 21 and I went to Curl Fest. And people would randomly walk up to me like, I follow you on Instagram. I love the dolls, da, 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 da. And it makes me realize just how much I've touched people that I didn't even realize I was. We also struggle with that. We did this rally with our girls and they, you know, they were be like, you inspired me. I'm like, me? And we're taught that at such a young age to not feel worthy and, and, and to it never feel like it's good enough. And, and part of it is because I think we're also not comfortable bragging about ourselves and celebrating yeah. our accomplishments because we think we're supposed to be modest and humble. And look, I think all of this is a process of unlearning. And, you know, I'm writing a book about bravery and perfection. And I, I really do think that, but I love that you're honest about it because I think that we all struggle with it whether you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s. Allegedly, it gets much easier after you turn 60. We always like to ask our guests, what's your brave, not perfect moment? You know, when's the moment where you said, F it, I'm going to go for it? I definitely took a risk when I moved to Cincinnati. That was a big risk for me. And then pursuing my company full time. I am a Venture for America fellow, recently graduated, so I'm an alumni now. And I worked at two startups. And I had to accept that I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> Going into the workforce was incredibly challenging for me. And then having the opportunity to work on Healthy Roots full time, even though I was still figuring myself out and figuring out my company, it ultimately worked out. 
because that same fall, I got investment from Backstage Capital. I won the CVC award from Venture for America, and then everything else just started rolling. But before then, I had to accept the fact that I didn't know what I was doing and asking for help. That's been one of my biggest struggles. And what I constantly tell people to do is just ask people for help. Mm. And I think I appreciate being humble, my imposter syndrome from time to time, because it keeps me centered and grounded and constantly keeps me aware of like what I don't know and making sure that I'm reaching out to people asking for help. Yeah, that's so great. So what's the one thing you would tell the younger version of yourself? Ooh, um, put down the flat iron. (laughs) (laughs) Leave your hair alone. Um, I think the one thing that I constantly tell people is don't let other people rush your process and don't say no before you can say yes. I feel like we often feel pressured because people are telling us what we are supposed to be doing or we see other people doing things. And like one of the things that I appreciate that my dad taught me is see what other people do, don't do what other people do. Because mm-hmm. what they're doing might not actually work for you and you have a completely different path in life and you shouldn't feel obligated to others. And then also not saying no before you can say yes. Pursue every opportunity. The only reason why Healthy Roots was able to happen was because I reached out to the program director of the fellowship I was applying for and had a conversation before I even decided that I wasn't qualified because my initial response was this is about race no one is going to understand and then I said no like let me actually talk to them first and then put in the work and the effort because the only opportunity you don't have are the ones you don't pursue that's powerful you are a role model I'm so inspired thank you for making me have an amazing day Thanks for having me. I'm hopefully this resonates with people. It's weird for me to people for people to still tell me that like I'm helping them when I'm still figuring myself out, but it it matters. I was really inspired by what Yalitza is doing and I think as a mom of a young brown son, I often struggle with this and see that there's just not enough toys, enough images where my son could look at them and say, "You know what? That looks like Sean." And so I love that Yalitza, for millions of girls across the country and across the world, are helping them see themselves and know what they're worth and that they are beautiful and that they can be everything. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani. 